Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and says this, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, I pray as we, we look at your word this morning. Help us, O oh God, to set aside our, our, our distractions, our prejudices, our, our weighty things on our minds, and help us to look at the truth of your word and absorb it to the point that it changes our lives for your glory and helps us become more like Jesus. Pray for each one who's hearing me this morning, whether through the recording or uh, this, through this time live right here. You would help us all to be more like you, to be more praising your name for what you've done and are doing in our lives. Be with those who cannot be with us because of illness or being away. Keep them safe. Bring them back safely to us. Thank you, Father, for all you've done for us in Jesus. We ask all these things in his name. We pray, amen. need to ask a question of you this morning. How many of you, by raise of hand, are artistically inclined? How many of you can draw with a pencil or paint with a paintbrush? Raise your hand. Two, two and a half people. Sold. Uh, I am not one of those people. I am the guy who has to have the numbers, you know, the numbers in the, in the painting. You know, you know how you did when you were a kid, you painted the numbers. And drawing stick figures is probably is the best I got. Uh, I, I mean, it's just not that way. And from the looks of everybody's expressions, you aren't that way either. And that's okay. Uh, artistic exp- expression is just not my thing. Um, and so when I walk into a gallery, I just stand amazed at how uh, people can paint like that and draw like that. It just doesn't, just blows my mind. Well, want to draw a portrait, not, not physically this morning, but more from the text this morning, a portrait that tells a story. You know, you walk into any art gallery or museum today, you can tell that whatever you're looking at, whether it be an etching, a drawing of some kind, a painting, there's a story behind it. There's a story that the, the author wanted to tell, whether it be just a, an appreciation for human beauty or... A, a particular event that happened that they captured on, on canvas. Well, the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2 draw a portrait for us. And the picture is a description of someone without Christ. So what I want, what I want to do this morning is I want to give you four facts that this picture tells us. And then we'll draw a conclusion at the end. So don't jump ahead. Don't look toward the back of your sheet. Just wait, please. This is, this is really good. 
Uh, four facts this morning from this passage of Scripture that would help us to see who are about description about the man or woman without Christ. The first fact is found in verse 1, and, and I'm going to use the term unregenerate. And when I use the term unregenerate, I'm using it to refer to the unsaved, those who have not been bought by the blood of Christ, who have not accepted Christ by faith, who have not been regenerated in their spiritual life. So that's what I use when I use the word unregenerate. That's, that's who I'm referring to. So the first description, if you would, this morning is that unregenerate people are lifeless. Unregenerate people are lifeless. And you he made alive who are dead in trespasses and sins. If you, you have your translation there in front of you, the, the phrase he made alive is in italics. And the reason for that is, is grammatically it refers all the way back to, down to verse uh, verse 5, made us alive together with Christ. So the, the translators put that phrase up in verse 1 just to make everything flow together nicely. But in the original language of the New Testament, it, it literally reads, and you being dead in trespasses and sins. The Apostle Paul lays out a couple of things just with this, this first point in that they cannot respond to God. That phrase, who were dead, shows that this is a condition of death and it is continually on those who do not believe. It is dead being dead. Continual death. A death that is no, has no hope of being eliminated. And then notice the description here in, in, in when he says, you who were dead, does not describe physical death, but spiritual death. This death is a separation from God. Being spiritually dead means a total inability to relate to God in any way. It is the condition of each person born in the world and will be their state for eternity unless salvation occurs. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 15.22 where he says, For as, Adam, as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. So there is a difference. There is spiritual death. There is separation from God. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, automatically there, there was this breaking of fellowship, this separation whereby sin came between God and, and mankind. And the only way that could be atoned for was by blood by sacrifice. So this is spiritual death. I, an illustration that we are all familiar with, with is, is a funeral. You've, you've been to them. You've participated in them perhaps as a family member has passed away. I'm thinking of a situation this past summer uh, when we're still down in Iowa. There was a lady in our church who was, um, her husband, uh, he was a pastor uh, for many, many years. Pastored actually at Faith Baptist in Hibbing for 17 years. Uh, Brother Don Johnston, uh, his wife, Jenny, was diagnosed uh, with stage four, uh, I think it was uh, liver cancer, kidney cancer, something along those lines. And uh, it was all of a sudden, she, it was, she was diagnosed back in the spring, passed away in uh, June of this year. It was quite sudden uh, passing. But I had an opportunity that they needed help for the funeral. It was going to be a large funeral, needed somebody to run um, the PowerPoint and the sound in the back, and I didn't have to work that day, so I was able to do that. But when you walked into the church, uh, they had an open casket for her in the back where people could come and see. And no matter who filed before that casket, and you know this, having been to funerals themselves, perhaps, 
no matter how much a person wanted to reach out and, and just interact with Jenny, they were talking to a corpse. Jenny couldn't respond. She was already gone. And there was no effort that her family or friends could do to be able to interact with her. They could talk all they wanted. They could cry all they wanted. They could recite uh, memories all they wanted, but there was no way Jenny was going to respond because she was dead. And praise the Lord, she, she, she is now with the Lord and rejoicing before His presence. But in the moment, she was experiencing death. And death made her unable to respond. And just like a funeral shows how much a person cannot respond to physical interaction, even more so there's a powerful illustration here that shows that, that unregenerate people are indeed lifeless. They cannot respond to God. There is no way that you, if you walk up to a person who does not believe by faith in Christ and what he did on the cross, there is no way that they're going to be able to interact with you on that subject. Why? Because they don't believe. They don't have the interaction with God. They, they cannot respond to him. They are lifeless before him. Which just shows how much God did for us. If we go back to chapter 1, we talked the past several weeks of how God saved us. And the reality being that the salvation is from God and not man. They cannot respond to God. Secondly, here's kind of the reason why they cannot respond. They cannot respond to God because they are in deliberate rebellion against Him. See, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Colossians chapter 2, 13, verse 13 kind of mirrors this as Colossians and Ephesians mirror one another. But Colossians 2.13 says this, you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Mankind is lifeless. Unregenerate people are lifeless because of their rebellion against Him. The word trespasses here has the idea of violation of moral standards. It can be translated offense or wrongdoing. And here the emphasis is on violating God's moral standard. God has a standard for right and wrong. And you and I miss it continually. And by doing so, by failing to meet that standard, we are considered trespassers. We are considered people who violate His standard and cause offense to Him. But not only are we trespassers, we are also sinners. Verse and. The, the word sin here in its, in its truest form means to miss the mark. To miss the mark. And Paul is using it as, as the New Testament uses it, as Scripture uses it. It shows the failure of mankind to meet the standard of God's holiness. So there's a continual failure here. There's a failure to meet the, the, the God's moral standard, but there's also a failure to meet God's standard of holiness. God requires that we be holy, for, for He is holy, as we heard from 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. And we all miss that mark. And those without Christ continually miss that mark. There is no way they can reach it. There is no way that they can possibly attain God's moral standard and God's holy standard. Therefore, they are in rebellion against him. Now, it must be noted that in verse, in verse 1, 
and you he made alive who are dead in trespasses and sins. The, the different translations rely on different manuscripts of the original language. And the New King James relies, that I'm using this morning, relies on a, a different manuscript, which is fine. But there are other manuscripts that insert the phrase, your, in between in and trespasses. So they read, and you he made alive who are dead in your trespasses and sins. And I think it's fair to, to put that in there. But I must note this, that regardless of whether it's in there or not, the, the idea of the, of the sentence here, the phrase, points that there's personal responsibility in sin. These aren't just random acts of rebellion. These are deliberate acts of violating God's standards. And therefore, man is actively, as we'll get to, is very directly involved in his rebellion against God. He is, he is continually showing by his status before God, unable to respond, that all he can do is violate God's standards again and again and again. And he personally is responsible for his or her sin. That's what dead people do. That's what spiritually dead people do. And I hope we see those who were without Christ in this light. That they are spiritually dead. They have no life to them. Paul makes that very clear. And, and, and he's using that term, you. He's pointing to the Ephesian believers. And he said, you were dead. There was, there was a condition that they underwent, that they were just like this, being spiritually lifeless, directly rebelling against God. And so that was their condition before Christ. And that leads me to to ask this question by point of application. Do you see the seriousness of your sin? And do you take responsibility for it? Do you see your sin as serious? Or do you just treat it casually? Do you just kind of view it as, okay, well, this is just a mistake I made? Rather than looking at, at, no, I I violated God's word. And I did it deliberately. And that is helpful for all of us. That's helpful for me. To view my sin, to view my faults, my errors, as direct rebellion against God. It's a deliberate choice to violate what he has said is right. And dear Christian this morning, are you taking responsibility for your sin? Are you coming to God and asking Him for forgiveness? Are you coming to Him, pleading with Him for mercy because you have deliberately violated and disobeyed His word? Whether you do it just in your personal prayer time or whether you're doing it throughout the day, perhaps you come across a situation where you know you sinned, you know you violated what God said was right, you disobeyed, you take time to pray to God and ask God, would you forgive me for that? That was wrong. Please forgive me. And maybe you take the next step, and if, it's this, if, it's being, if you've sinned against somebody else, you go to that person and say, would you please forgive me? I was wrong. I own my sin. That's very humiliating, isn't it? To own your sin. But yet, when we see from this example in Scripture, that's who we once were. People who were sinners, who didn't do anything but sin. Now we've been freed, but we still need to own our sin taking responsibility for it, confessing it, and asking for forgiveness. So the first fact, not only are unregenerate people lifeless, but secondly, unregenerate people are rebellious. 
unregenerate people are rebellious. Verse 2, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. There's several things that Paul points about these rebellious people. And again, notice, in which you once. That's not where we are. Amen? We, weren't, we are not like that. If in which you once walked. So Paul, Paul is looking at the Ephesians and he's saying, you once did this. And I don't think he's doing it to shame them. You know, sometimes we, we, we draw on the past to bring shame out. I don't think that's what Paul is doing here. He is doing this by way of reminder for the Ephesian believers and for us that we were once like this. We once did this. But their identity is tied to their rebellion. Their identity is tied to rebellion. That's the idea of the phrase, you once walked. The word walked has the idea of to live. This is where humanity existed. The whole phrase in which you once walked is just pointing back to verse 1, the trespasses and sins, in which or in those sins you once walked, you once lived. That was your course of life. That was your daily activity. That's how you lived. You conducted yourself in that way. You couldn't help but sin. That was sin that was deliberate violations of God and His Word were continually happening for you. And the point of the verb there in which you once walked, the, word, the point of the verb walked is constructed to show that was once something that happened in the past but no longer is. But for the unbeliever, the unregenerate person, that is who they are, even today. The average person you meet on, on, the, on the street who does not know Christ by faith, who has not accepted his free gift of salvation, who has not received forgiveness of his sins through Christ, is a deliberate rebel. It's someone who lives in sin. Oh, they might think they, they, they do good things from time to time, and they may. But if you recall, the Old Testament Scripture says all our righteousness is dirty rags. There's no value to what they're doing because it all comes from a sinful lifestyle. Anyway, that is who they are. The unregenerate people, their identity is rebellious. Secondly, you can see also from this passage they are influenced by Satan. They're influenced by Satan. That's the idea of according to the prince of the power of the air. Another translation uh, puts it the prince of the power of the age. Uh, excuse me, according to the course of this world. That's the word world is age. As, there's, there's a physical and spiritual meaning here. Paul points out that this is this, the, the, the philosophy and practices of a belief system that is against God. So he's literally, you once lived in this belief system that continually was against God in its practice and its belief. So that's, that's where you live. That's the that's a framework you, you were involved in. The prince of the power of the air is, is, quite frankly, Satan. It refers to his spiritual power that he has. And he's able to exercise that. The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. This is, it's just the, the whole point of this phrase right here is to show that the devil works in those who disobey God. 
works is, is active. It's, the, the construction is, is continual working, always working. He influences the sins and disobedience of humanity. John writes about the devil in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, where he says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Christ came to destroy Satan because he is at work. He's at work in the sons of disobedience. Here the phrase disobedience refers to unbelief or disbelief. Those who are not of God display their unbelief by their consistent disobedience. So when you see someone, as you think of in our world today, people who are rioting and people who are doing things that God's Word specifically says not to do, they are literally showing they don't believe in God by doing those things. They are showing that God is not even a part of their mindset or conversation and are so influenced by the devil himself. Which leads me to say a few things before I get to my point of application. Brothers and sisters, this morning, if, if there's been a time where you were saved and, and, and believing, trusting in faith in Christ, put your faith in him, received his free gift of salvation, for you, do you realize that Satan is always working? Sometimes we, we think of Satan as just as some guy with little red horns and a pitchfork and he's just sitting in hell. He's waiting for things to, to come, people come down to him and stuff like that. No, Satan is active. Satan is always busy and he will come after whoever he wants to, including believers. And we read in, in the scriptures that Satan is a, a roaring lion seeking about whom he may devour. He may not be able to have the believer in Jesus Christ for eternity, but he sure can influence you. Are you aware of his influence in your life? Are you looking and seeing, okay, am I saying or doing something that Satan or one of his as demons is, in, is influencing me over? And are you wary of him? Are you being careful for him? Are you looking to see where he might trip you up? Because let's face it, he's not, he's not just sitting on a red throne just waiting for things to happen. No, he's out there. He's continually working. And he is always influencing the sin and disobedience of those who do not believe. So a point of application in regards to that this morning, do you and I have compassion on those who are controlled by Satan? He is working. He is out there influencing the very lives of people in this world. He is making direct correlation between his rebellion to their rebellion. And he's linking the two as influencing them so much that he has control of them. We read in scriptures also that they are referred to as sons of darkness or children of disobedience or Satan's children. But do we have compassion on them? Do we have compassion on those who are lost, controlled by Satan? And this is convicting to me. I, I find myself at times judging people who are doing things that are directly contrary to God's word, but I have to step back and realize, well, they're doing it because that's just natural for them. And the devil's behind it. In some ways, I, I look at them, I see them, and I, I don't feel anger against them. I feel pity because they have not believed the truth. 
So brothers and sisters this morning, are you and I showing compassion to those who are controlled by Satan? Yes, we cannot save them. Yes, we cannot bring them to faith in Christ as a choice on their own. But do we still act in pity towards them? Do we still extend grace towards them? Because they may react wrongly to us, and there may be something in our hearts that stirs up an, an attitude of revenge, and we want to get even with them, but when we stop and think about it, can we extend grace to them? Because they're just doing what comes naturally. They don't know the truth. And you and I have an opportunity to extend grace to them and show that there is hope. They can be released from his control. They can be saved. Do we look at people who are controlled by Satan? Do we look at those who are not believers? Are we judging them or are we compassionate towards them? So, unregenerate people are lifeless. Unregenerate people are rebellious. Thirdly, unregenerate people are energetic rebels. So we kind of get just a little bit more succinct here a little bit more descriptive, going from rebellion, the rebellion that we lived in, that humanity lives in now, to talk about how they act that out, how they display that. Um, verse 3, among whom all we all once, again, there's that phrase, once, conduct ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. The rebellion that unregenerate people show is displayed in daily actions of a life opposed to God. Psalm 107 verse 11 highlights this. Says, in Psalm 107, the psalmist is talking about this path, this journey that people follow along and describing life, and he describes what happens when people come to the end of themselves. But in Psalm 107, verse 11, he says this, For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. People who are rebellious will always do what rebels do, and that is they oppose God. Again, Paul uses the term we. He's including himself into this description. We once, we all once did this. And by using the term all, Paul says there is no unregenerate person who has not walked in the path of disobedience. There is nobody in the history of this world who has never been disobedient, save one. And that was Jesus Christ. We all live this way. And indeed, people who are not saved live this way today. They conduct themselves in a way that expresses their sin. That's the idea that we're conducted is to conduct oneself in terms of certain principles. It's, it's a pattern of living that you ascribe yourself to. And the, the construction of the sentence shows that this is, this is something that was chosen in the past, and the results are continuous. It's living like this and continuing to do so. And by using this phrase, Paul points that this is the activity before our conversion. We continually sin. We continually engage in sinful activities. Defining this, these activities is Paul uses this, this term lust of the flesh, of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh in the mind. The word lust here means to desire something forbidden or simply inordinate. It's, it's, it's looking or desiring something that God says no to. 
And it's a desire that comes from the flesh. The term flesh is not the physical you know, skin that we would use, but is an ethical dimension that is categorically opposed to God in His ways. We, we talk about the spirit and the flesh, the flesh lusting against the spirit, spirit desiring against the flesh. The flesh is that which is in our hearts that still yearns for sinful things. Why? Because the flesh is categorically opposed to God. It wants nothing to do with Him. And for the unbeliever, the unregenerate person, that is all that they know. They know all things against God. So they are actively engaged in fulfilling those desires, whatever it might be. Whatever sins they want, they continually go after them so that they are doing what sin desires. That's the idea of the phrase, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind. The word desires here is, is, can also be translated will and, and indicates purpose or intent. So they're intending to sin. They sin because they intend to. And not just, just randomly, not just, okay, you know, I, I do all these, all these things against God, so I'm just going to keep doing it. You know, those, there's, there's thought behind it. There's intention behind it. That's the, that's the meaning of the phrase, the mind. It refers to the faculty of thinking and comprehending and reasoning. It refers to the reasoning process that the mind goes through to process information. And this shows how rebellious sin is and how deliberate it is. Sin and disobedience, unbelief, are not random actions, but deliberate desired outcomes. When, when the unbeliever sins, he has thought it through. He has, he has not just this random thing that happens. No, there is deliberate action behind it. He has put in his heart that he will do this, and he will take the steps necessary to fulfill that desire. We've all heard of, of different stories of, of people who have committed atrocities and, and uh, experienced, uh, have done things that are truly horrific. And it shows that they, they have thought through those activities, they have engaged purposefully, they have committed a plan to memory so they could fulfill those desires. But the person who cheats or lies is no different from a person who commits atrocities. They still engage their minds to fulfill and do what the flesh desires. Why? Because they're sinners by nature and they cannot do anything else but rebel. Which leads me to say this. By point of application, are you and I actively fighting sin in our lives? You know, the unbeliever doesn't do that. The unregenerate person doesn't do that because they can't. They have no power to do so. They just continue to sin and sin and sin. That's all that they do. But are you and I as believers in Jesus Christ who have received his spirit, who are now born again, who have the promise of eternal life, who can live free from sin, are we fighting sin in our lives or are we giving into it? I'm saying that to you as much to me. I need to take an active approach to sin in my life every single day. Because even though we are believers in Jesus Christ, we still wrestle with sin, don't we? Every single day. This past week, you all wrestle with something sinful. Whether it be a thought, mind, action. You all struggled with it. And the struggle itself isn't wrong. What is wrong is when we give in to it. When we let it take control. When we give it the control it once had, 
even though it doesn't have the right to have that control anymore. So are you and I actively fighting sin in our lives? Are we looking to his word? Are we running to the truth and not believing the lie that the world tells us that this activity is okay when really God says it's not? I just use an example of my own life of actively fighting sin. Uh, just in general, um, I, I've struggled at times in my past with addiction. But I have steps in place in my life that help me fight that. One of them is an accountability program software that's on my computer, on my phone. It sends a report out every week to, I think, three or four people that I'm accountable to. They know what I see, they know what I look at. I have other people that I call on a regular basis whose uh, intent is not just to see how things are going and catch up, and oh, that's all good and well, fine. But they're also, hey, how are you doing spiritually? How are things going in this area or that area? And that helps me fight sin. I'm accountable to other people. I, I, I continually put stuff in the, uh, not stuff, methods into my path that help me fight sin. And perhaps you, you, you can think of t- uh, circumstances that you struggle with in your life. And perhaps you've, you've put into place structures that help you avoid that sin. Or when that temptation comes to sin, you know how to fight it. Because we have that ability now, amen? We have the ability to fight our sin. The unregenerate person doesn't. They're actively engaged in sin. That's all they think about. That's all they do. That's all they can't help but do anything else. But you and I have a choice to fight the sin in our lives, to fight that perhaps uh, bitter attitude toward that person who wronged you at one point in the past. Or perhaps fight that that urge to lash out at your spouse who perhaps hasn't done anything wrong to you, but just you're annoyed and, and you feel like you need to lash out and say something that you're going to regret. Be actively fighting sin in your life because you have the ability to do so. The unregenerate person does not. Fourthly, and lastly, unregenerate people are not only lifeless, rebellious, energetic rebels, but they are recipients, lastly, of God's anger. Last part of verse 3 says this, and we're by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Unregenerate people are recipients of God's wrath. That's the idea of the phrase nature. They, were, they, were natu- they are naturally against God. They're naturally against God. The, the word, phrase were, again, shows that this was once the condition of the Ephesian believers. They themselves, the responsibility is theirs. They themselves were, at this one point in time, this way. The word nature has the idea of condition or circumstances as determined by, by birth. And Paul is saying that we were, by virtue of our, of our birth, of our ancestors, of our parents, inheritors to a status of being under God's wrath. That was just a natural progression of things. People who are born today, the babies being born right now, automatically as they come into the world, they are underneath God's wrath. 
I had a little nephew born this past Thursday in New Hampshire. David Yance Tubbs. Uh, six pounds, nine inches, 19 inches long. Mom and baby are doing great, even after a C-section. And as cute as that guy is, as, 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 as he is added to a family already of seven, he's now the eighth child, he is under God's wrath, spiritually speaking. He is under God's wrath. That is just the natural progression of things because of humanity's sin against God. And I hope and pray that one day he doesn't have to experience the full, full ramifications of God's wrath. Which, by the way, leaves me to say, aren't you thankful that we don't have to be under God's wrath anymore? Because of salvation, because of what Christ has done, we are not under that condition. But by nature, all who are born are underneath his wrath. And what is his wrath? It's, a, it's his fervent, uh, fervent anger, children of wrath, you know, putting again the, the description of um, being God, being the Father, and we are the children, we are the children of wrath. They're under his fervent anger. And the best way I can illustrate under is I would again draw on my construction experience before this past year. One of the tools that you actively use in carpentry construction is a impact. An impact is designed to push a screw through a pre-drilled hole or even if a hole isn't there. And the torque behind that impact can be up to 1,600 pounds per square inch. And, and when you put that screw on that particular uh, wood or metal that you're going to drill through, the impact as you pull the trigger on that uh, impact gun pushes that screw through the particular surface that you're drilling into so that the, the screw can stick. And there's a whole bunch of force behind that uh, pressure so that what happens is the screw goes where it's supposed to go or shouldn't it's supposed to go. But unlike the, the impact of the screw gun that puts pressure on the screw to be uh, put into that particular material, with God, the pressure of his divine wrath never stops. It's a continual presence. It's a continual emphasis. And the wrath isn't just random anger. It's divine wrath because of disobedience. God is angry because we are disobedient to him. Because humanity fails to meet his standard of morality and holiness. In Romans chapter 2, verses 5-9, through nine, Paul writes about this wrath. But he says, But in accordance with your hardness and your impotent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality immorality, immortality. but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness the indignation and wrath and tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also the Greeks. Paul says there, wrath is on everybody regardless of what ethnicity you are. And it's a never-ceasing wrath. They're disobedience and therefore they are underneath God's wrath. But Paul says, he, again, he's drawing the comparison to this is who we once were. But he also notes at the end of verse 3, look at this, just as the others, this, this, this capacity of being under God's wrath, this, this status of being continually under his wrath is true for everyone. 
the rest of humanity is like this. So Paul is using this simple phrase to point the attention of his readers to realize there are people like that even as he is writing. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, Romans 1.18. They are continually under his wrath. That neighbor of yours who you live next to who is not a believer, who continually sins, who continually finds himself against God, is under God's wrath, under God's anger. That family member of yours who openly practices sin is under the vengeful wrath of God. God is angry with them. Yes, God loves the sinner. But in some sense of the word, God also hates the sinner. God died for the sinner on the cross. That's how God's love is displayed, John 3.16. But God is also angry with the sinner. So we need, and we look at people, we need to see, we need to have the love of Christ for them. We need to have that perspective that reaches out and and pities them because of their sin and seeks to impart the truth to them. But we also have to realize that God is angry with them. And that is a status I wouldn't wish on anybody. Because what is the ultimate display of God's anger? It's eternity in hell, isn't it? That is a place where God's anger is continually displayed. And I, I, I think I can speak for you. I wouldn't want any, my worst enemy to go there. Because only, they only know God's wrath. This is true for all humanity. Under his fervent anger, recipients of divine wrath. Brothers and sisters, this morning we've seen the portrait of those around us who do not know Christ. And it's not a pretty picture. They are lifeless. They have no hope. The picture itself is bursting with death, rebellion, self-destruction, and divine wrath. I don't think there is a person in this world who wants that picture in their house. There's kind of a dual emphasis to this point. But our response to this portrait must not only be one of compassion and testimony to the saving power of Christ. That is, that is what we are called to do. We are to evangelize the lost and so I hope that that spurs you to do, to do that this morning, looking at this portrait, this description. But more importantly and primarily, we must be thankful to God that we are not who we once were. And you being dead in which you once, we all once and were We're not like them anymore. We are not under that wrath. We are not under rebellion. We are not dead. We are alive. God has done a wondrous work in saving us. He has made dead people alive. And for that alone, we are to praise Him. Are you thankful this morning that you are not who you once were? And are using that 
example in your own life to help people see that they have that same opportunity. We're not who we once were. Never forget that.